On the 1st of December, 1999, lots of people were excited. I was eight, but I was probably excited too. <laughs> excited about living to see the end of one millennium and the coming of a new one. And of course, it was a really good excuse to have an enormous party. But not everyone was jubilant at the prospect of crossing over this significant point in the calendar. Around the world, many people, governments and outsiders, were at the end of months of hard work. Months planning and preparing contingency after contingency. Months drilling public awareness campaigns and designing scary logos to capture the public's awareness. They could only now sit anxiously, watching each tick-tock, counting down to the millennium to see if our increasingly computerised world would continue to function when it came. Of course, the Millennium Book turned out to be a major fuss about nothing at all. A few months later, the entire thing was all but forgotten. Sometimes we can really misunderstand something without knowing it. And this can cause us to worry or expend energy fruitlessly. Sometimes it can even cause arguments, as what we think should be happening doesn't happen. When Jesus started to teach about the Kingdom of God, he encountered this problem a people who had an idea of what the kingdom of God meant and what the Messiah was about to do that was for the most part wrong, or at least very incomplete. Like those preparing for the Millennium Book, those watching the coming of the kingdom of God expected a major event that would change the world dramatically in a very short space of time. Jesus is not introducing an entirely new concept with them. His teaching about the kingdom is not so much introductory, but rather provides further explanation and clarification. So to help us understand the two seed parables here, we need to know what the kingdom of God meant to first century Jews. What kind of imagery would come to mind, and what sense of God's power would the phrase evoke? Early on in the book of Daniel, King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream from God. His wise men can't interpret it, but then Nebuchadnezzar won't actually tell his wise men what the dream is, which is his test to make sure that none of them lie to him when they interpret it. And uh, he gets a bit angry because none of them can interpret it, and threatens to kill all of Babylon's wise men. So Daniel prays to God that he may know the dream, and God grants to him what the king's dream was, and what it means, and he goes to Nebuchadnezzar and convinces him not to kill all of the wise men. And explains the dream to him. And in this dream, there's a statue made of gold, silver, bronze, and iron. And these, Daniel says, will represent Babylon and the kingdoms that would follow it. And then ultimately, in this vision, God comes and establishes a kingdom over the entire earth, which has complete dominion and will last forever. I'll quickly put the relevant couple of verses up. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end. It shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and as it broke in pieces, the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. And the dream is certain, and its interpretation sure. So the kingdom of God, they thought, was going to come like the aliens in the 1996 film Independence Day. The Messiah was going to come and sweep across the face of the earth, 
subjecting all the nations to God's eternal rule. Now, I'm not dwelling on the, the passage in Daniel, but there you have sort of the Jewish idea that would have been familiar to the people that Jesus was speaking to throughout his ministry. The kingdom of God was a literal earthly kingdom established by God at the end of time. More specifically, they thought that the peace of the mountain in Daniel was the Messiah. So they expected the Messiah to be coming to bring this kingdom in. The secular Bible scholar Dr. Barton believed that Jesus preached a literal earthly kingdom of God and that he was close at hand. And it was only later on, after his death, and the absence of this kingdom appearing, that early Christians changed what the kingdom meant. Now we've seen that Jews in Jesus' day certainly did believe that about the kingdom, but did Jesus agree? No, I don't think so. If Jesus had exactly the same idea about the kingdom of God as everyone else did, he would have declared the kingdom, but he wouldn't have needed to teach about it, as though the people were missing something in their understanding. In these parables we're about to look at and elsewhere, Jesus shows that his view of the kingdom is more than just what the people around him thought it was, even his own disciples thought it was. Let's uh, read through the parable of the seed growing. And he said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. So this parable is set over the course of an agricultural season. The crop is sown, and it's harvested. And the, the key bits I'm going to pick up on are the mystery of the, the seed growing and the, the fruitful crop, and then the harvest at the end. So last week, Chris was covering the parable of the sower, back in uh, verse 8, this uh, chapter of Mark. We see the seed falling on good soil, grows, and it bears fruit. So Jesus is already using grain, the seeds here, to describe the different reactions of people to his word. So in this parable, you're like we're seeing the good seed um, in more detail. So these these people here are those growing after receiving God's word. But they're not just growing, they're now part of the kingdom. God is raising them up for the harvest. And that's an important piece of context for every Christian to remember. That you are an active part of the kingdom, growing alongside of the saints, becoming a great harvest for God. Now I think that's a helpful thing to know. But what if you're feeling like you're not growing? Or that your walk with God seems to have little or no fruit. Others might look like they're doing better. Maybe that person that you prayed for for years and years is still really far away from becoming a Christian. Maybe you don't feel like you belong in this field for the rest of the week. Maybe you were still here by mistake. And when the harvest comes, you will be seen as a well-disguised weed. Well, Jesus gives an answer to this sort of, uh, this sort of feeling. Notice that once the seed is sown, it grows without input from the man sowing. It happens automatically. That's without human help in any way. It then goes on, part by part, to grow stronger and stronger. First the blade, then the ear, and then the grain. Men do not build the kingdom by their own strength. In fact, it's the 
It's a mystery to us. The making of a Christian, and the growing of that Christian, and the fruit seen in that Christian's life for the gospel are all of God, ultimately. So don't be surprised if you sometimes feel unworthy, or even like you don't belong in the kingdom sometimes. God uses the weak to shame the strong, does he not? His work is a mystery to man. And if you struggle to find a reason sometimes, that's okay. That may actually be the proof that it was God who called you into the kingdom after all. So the growing in the fruit is not of man. Um, sort of as an aside, I don't think the man in this parable represents God or man. Because he does sort of things that you could sort of ascribe to both. He harvests, which is a God thing to do if you like, but he also is ignorant of how the seed grows. Which is clearly not a God thing, that's very much a man thing. So I think here that the man is, is the farmer, he's part of the setting of the parable, not part of the message, so to speak. This way of talking about the kingdom must have been unexpected at the time. Jesus tells people in the parable of the sower that the seed sown on good soil grows and bears fruit. And maybe some of the people there understood that he's talking about the people who are following God. Now, that bearing fruit is actually shown to be the growing of the kingdom. And notice they don't, they don't sort of sound like the ears of corn in Pharaoh's dream. They're not going around eating up other plants. It doesn't sound like the wheat is sweeping across the earth and subjugating the nations. It's not really that idea at all. Sort of instead of this Independence Day rapid, overwhelming invasion, it's a field of wheat that grows so slowly you wouldn't even notice it was happening. <clears throat> After the seed's grown, it's harvested. And this act of harvesting uses language that's very reminiscent of that Joel 3, verse 13. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. And this sort of language about harvest is used often in the Old Testament to describe judgment of the nations at the end of time. The, uh, that go in, tread, for the winepress is full. And the sort of word used in Hebrew is like the word used for subdue in Genesis, where it's saying fill the earth and subdue it. So it's the same sort of imagery that's seen in Daniel 2, that God is going to rule over the earth, God is going to judge it, and then subdue it as well. Not to judge it, go away, but establish dominion. So some of what the people Jesus told this parable to, you know, what they thought about the kingdom, was true. God was indeed going to establish his rule on the earth. The key difference, if you like, is how it gets to that point. It's not, you know, a rapid, the Messiah comes, and it comes right now. There's this long, slow, growing process that, that occurs after the Messiah has come before the kingdom is established across the earth. This, and the act of sowing, uh, in the parable of plant, you know, implies purpose, which would be the harvest. Harvests don't mean anything to themselves, but to those who receive them, you know, wheat doesn't really care, the farmer cares. You know, here Jesus shows how God's kingdom can't start to come and then stop at some point. God started this work, he's building up his kingdom as if from little seeds, and he doesn't do that without purpose, just as no farmer is going to go and plant a crop for no reason, especially now diesel is so expensive. 
Yeah, they, they do it because the harvest, you know, they want the harvest to come in. So the future harvest here is inevitable. In the end, the kingdom of God will have dominion in the new heavens and the new earth. If the seed growing was a mystery to man, then I think the harvest is also a mystery to the wheat. Plants aren't going to know the day or the hour. You know, we're not told the day or the hour. As before, with the growing being a mystery, those in the kingdom are not responsible for this final moment. From the smallest of beginnings, all the way through to the kingdom's final eternal form, it's God who's in control, not man. If you're a believer here today, you can take confidence from this. God is not only working in you, but you will share in his victory, and that victory is sure. And seeing the kingdom grow is a sign that that victory is there to come in the future. Of course, it's also a bit of a warning, isn't it, to those outside of the kingdom. Ultimately, God establishes his dominion over all and for all time. There's nowhere else to go where God's dominion isn't. You know, God's victory is sure. Moving on to the parable of the mustard seed. And this second parable, it's similar to the parable of the growing seed in structure. But I think it gives us a different perspective on the kingdom. So I'll put it up again. And he said, With what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. So in this parable, yet again, we have a small seed that grows into something much bigger. But this time, rather than a whole field of seed, it's just one single plant. Likely, this is the kingdom itself at this point. And it's possibly even prophetic the way that Jesus teaches about the kingdom of God here, starting like a mustard seed, because that's exactly what it did. You know, following Jesus' death, and resurrection, and ascension, the small band of his followers that were left, you know, even during the time the New Testament is written, they've already gone out, the church has grown in size, it's already spreading out across the region and even outside of the region, across the sort of known world at the time. And it carries on until it goes right across the world to all nations. So here we certainly see the idea that the kingdom starts very small, and then it grows into this enormous tree-like plant. Now the best time to plant a tree is 20 years ago, or something like that. Now this idea, this must have been clear to some of Jesus' listeners. It's a long time. It's the antithesis of this rapid rolling up of the nations. It's a tree crop. So, it would be like going to see Independence Day, but you accidentally go to see the version of like realistic orbital mechanics, and they never made one of those because it would be really boring. You know, instead of this, the aliens arriving at the beginning of the film and just blowing everything up, they, they kind of arrive and then spend like the best part of 50 years sorting themselves out, and it would be really mundane and really dull and probably the most disappointing blockbuster ever released. And if you were first century Jew, and you were convinced Jesus is the Messiah, but then you found out he had zero intentions of getting rid of the Romans. In fact, this great kingdom of God that you long to see is going to come like a growing seed, and the seed is absolutely tiny right now. 
you can see one of the reasons that the crowd that welcomes Jesus into Jerusalem would later turn on him. It's a sort of selfish and really earthly-minded thing that to think that God must be primarily concerned with their earthly foes. It's clearly worth it for Jesus to spend his time teaching that the kingdom isn't coming like a conquering army now. But in this parable we see more than just the kingdom getting bigger over time. Now, some have talked about the mustard seed, and that it's not actually the smallest seed known then or now, as if this somehow proves Jesus factually wrong. Even though Jesus is giving a parable, the parables are blatantly metaphorical. Mustard also hardly grows into an enormous tree. The Greek word for tree isn't actually used here in Mark. Instead, it's mustard grows into the greatest plant in the garden. It's the word used for herbs or vegetables or garden plants. And then it grows so large that birds of the air will come in to nest in it. Now, not wanting to go too far with my exegesis, the mention of birds nesting right at the end um, is unlikely to be redundant. And Jesus could have chosen a more dramatic plant, like a cedar tree. They're often used in the Old Testament. Big, massive things you can build temples out of. I think here we see the kingdom not just being about God's judgment and dominion, as you sort of see in the parable of the seed growing, but about God's kingdom as part of the new creation. That the kingdom is a future home for the people God is gathering to himself. I assume many of you will have been out for a curry at some point during your lives, and other cuisines are available. Now, what fills you up when you have curry? You know, there's potatoes and tomatoes, and you'll probably have rice, you might have bread, you might have both, (laughs) depending on how hungry you are. Those things, if you like, they're the substance of the meal. But you wouldn't be very impressed if you were served a plate of potatoes, tomatoes, and some boiled rice. Your body might not notice, but you would notice. You didn't go just for the nutrition, you went for the flavour. And the spices that you know, they should have added wouldn't just be adding nutrition, they would be adding purpose to the meal. Back in Genesis, and I presume you'll know this, you don't have to look it up, chapter 1, verse 2, at the beginning of the creation account, the earth is described as formless and void, and that Hebrew word there is translated formless. It's elsewhere used to describe an empty place, a chaos or futility, a waste place. The earth is purposeless and chaotic, and yet you read through the chapter and God gives a purpose to everything, and then man is placed in a garden. There's this contrast of a lack of purpose and God bringing purpose through creation. This garden-like imagery is used elsewhere in the Old Testament. Um, So it's used in Isaiah 51, verse 3, where it says, The Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her thanksgiving and the voice of song. I think what Jesus is getting at here by selecting a garden plant rather than a really big tree, or a plant with a really tiny seed like a poppy, you know, it's setting a garden plant as well. It's there to provide flavour to meals. It's not like a carrot. <laughs> One that brings purpose to meals is pointing out that the coming of the kingdom of God is God restoring his purpose to creation or recreation. 
a new heavens and a new earth. Judgment. Apocalypse. These words are not a soft, comforting kind of words. And we've seen that ultimately God will judge the nations and establish his kingdom over all the earth. So, do we as Christians, knowing about that reality, face it as those ones prepared to face the millennium bug with fear and trepidation? No, by no means. Rather, we should be like those preparing to party like it's 1999. We know that the kingdom is part of the plan. It's coming, you know, it's coming of our home, really. And this parable has a much warmer ending than the previous one. And it doesn't quite end yet. I've not forgotten about the birds. At the very end of the parable, these birds come nest in the branches of the, uh, the mustard tree or shrub. And rather, I think, than simply showing that the mustard is really big, I think these birds are echoing images from the Old Testament. In the book of Daniel, a bit further on, in chapter 2, where we started, chapter 4, verse 20 to 23, the kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar is described like a tree, and there's beasts and birds that come and shelter under it, and those are the nations of his kingdom. And this image is used again in Ezekiel 17, 22 to 24, where God plants a cedar on the mountain height of Israel, and under it will dwell all kinds of birds. So, here Jesus is showing that the the rule of God's kingdom on earth, like, is not just going to be limited to physical Israel at that time. Here you've got the nations coming in to shelter within the kingdom. So, like the harvest in the parable of the seeds growing, God's people are being brought to him. But using birds rather than this field emphasizes how far and wide people are going to be one for Christ. It's as though the whole earth is now the field. Peter had to convince Jewish Christians that Gentiles could be Christians too, that they should be going out and sharing the gospel with them. There are proud people. There are people who were set apart from the other nations by God. But to the surprise of many, Jesus tells them that they won't be the only ones. Opening the kingdom of God to Gentiles may have seemed mad, foolish. Perhaps it was even a second only to blasphemy in the eyes of some of those who had nothing to do with Gentiles. And just like the steady, slow growth of the kingdom, that would have really surprised and shocked a lot of Jesus' Jewish audience. Though at the time, the kingdom was small like a mustard seed. Jesus tells us that in the end, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation will come into it. Sort of get this idea of it being like some great migration of birds, as they, as they sort of all sweep across to go into this great tree. So just to to sum up quickly. The kingdom is your past and present. You know, we can be encouraged by that. We may, when we feel small or unworthy, we know that we are in the kingdom because we've been sown into it, not because of what we've done. Christian becomes part of the kingdom when they accept Jesus, and your fruitfulness as a Christian ultimately depends on God. It's not your strength. And God works in ways we can't know can work more than we can ask or imagine. He certainly doesn't require our strength or worthiness. He causes us to bear fruit and further his kingdom. We also know that the kingdom means God's victory is sure. You can know that the growing of the kingdom 
points to that harvest, that time when every knee shall bow. But also we know that the kingdom is our future home. A home with the Lord in a perfectly renewed creation. And that's certainly something that's worth fixing our eyes to. Especially when we're feeling that we're not achieving what we want. Or when the world feels overpowering. Turn your eyes towards Jesus, the creator and perfecter of your faith. So you might see beyond your current circumstances to that glory that is coming. Amen. Amen. I'm going to pray quickly and then we'll stand and sing in the call of the kingdom. Lord, I thank you for these parables and for your teaching. I thank you that you, you came and you were not what people expected. That you, you told them that no, your kingdom was not about to be established across the earth right now. But you were in fact going to bring people from all across the earth into this glorious new creation that you are preparing. I think I thought that that would be something that we would all be conscious of that we would know that ultimately we are being prepared for that harvest, that you are with us, and that you ultimately will overcome the world, Lord. Amen. Amen. Amen.